The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Welcome to the BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Sue Wingrove, the magazine's deputy editor. And I'm Rob Attar, features editor. You're listening to the second of our two November 2009 podcasts. Coming up... I would argue that Quiberon Bay was more of a crisis for Britain than Trafalgar. That was Jeremy Black, who will reveal why the Battle of Quiberon Bay 250 years ago saved Britain from invasion. They grew up in the shadow of war and death, so they knew what it meant. And that was Sue Elliott, who will be explaining how the children of Britons who tended First World War graves in Belgium went on to fight the Nazis in the next war. This twice-monthly podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History, the UK's best-selling history magazine. The magazine is published monthly, and we'll tell you how to get hold of a copy later. Before we go to this month's interviews, let me tell you what's on our website at the moment. Whether or not you buy the magazine, there's lots of free historical content to enjoy there. If you haven't seen it before, do take a look. We have special features to read, plus our guide to history on the TV, as well as an index to back issues of the magazine. There's also a weekly quiz and a forum where you can talk history. It's at www.bbchistorymagazine.com. And now for our first interview. 250 years ago, the Royal Navy won a crucial victory over the French off the coast of France at Quiberon Bay. A British fleet led by Admiral Sir Edward Hawke put seven French ships out of action and in the process prevented a planned invasion of Britain. Jeremy Black has written a piece about Quiberon Bay in our November issue, and I recently spoke to him about the battle and why he believes it was one of the most important triumphs in British history. Why were the French planning to invade Britain in 1759? The French were planning to invade Britain in 1759 because they'd been at war with Britain in the Seven Years' War, what the Americans called the French and Indian War, from 1756 and in North America from 1754. And the French were doing badly in North America and in the colonies from 57 onwards. And as a result, the French planned a knockout invasion blow against Britain in 1759 because they thought that knocking out Britain would knock out the British Empire. So in some respects, it's rather like Napoleon's plan in 1805 and it's like Hitler's plan in 1940. Did they have a decent chance of mounting a successful invasion? The French had a decent chance of mounting a successful invasion if they could land the troops. It was not impossible once troops had landed to really challenge the British position. After all, Bonnie Prince Charlie, Charles Edward Stuart, had landed in 1745 with only a small number of men and had actually been able to overthrow the Hanoverian regime in Scotland and to march as far south as Derby. In 1688, William of Orange had landed and with a degree of popular support, but nevertheless, opposed by a royal army that was about twice the size of his invasion force, he had overthrown James II. So there was no inherent reason to believe that an invasion would fail. How did Britain plan to meet the French threat? 
The British sought to meet the French threat by blockading the main French ports. The French Navy was essentially divided between two major squadrons, the Atlantic Squadron based in Brest in Brittany and the Mediterranean Squadron based in Toulon. And the British plan was to blockade both and also to blockade the smaller ports like Le Havre in which invasion ships might be congregating as transports to carry over the troops. So did the French need to achieve naval superiority before they could invade? The French didn't need to achieve naval superiority before they invaded. All they needed to do was to be able to get ships into the Channel when the British weren't there. And that, of course, was much easier in the 18th century than today. There was no aerial reconnaissance, and the ships were very vulnerable to the wind. So let us say there was a British blockading squadron off Brest, and it was blown away by a westerly wind. It was blown along the Channel. Then the French would be able to get out. And, of course, one needs to remember that in 1805, the French fleets did, most of them, get out of their ports, just as they did in 1798. Nelson's victories were essentially over French fleets that had got out of blockaded positions. A blockade was extraordinarily difficult to mount with ships that were vulnerable to wind and wave and which couldn't hold their position on the water by using a steam engine. How advanced were the French invasion plans when their fleet was attacked by Sir Edward Hawke off the Brittany coast? The French invasion plans were well advanced when their fleet was attacked. The main squadron had got out of Brest, but the problem was, and again, in a sense, there's a parallel here with the Spanish Armada in 1588, the problem was the one of linking up the transport ships, which were on the South Breton coast, and convoying them up against England. And in a sense, that provided Hawke with his opportunity. It was that the French didn't, having come out of Brest, immediately turn against England. They turned south to pick up the transport ships and he was able to pursue them and catch them up in that position. So again, rather like, in some respects, the Spanish Armada. How did Britain achieve victory at the Battle of Quiberon Bay? Britain achieved victory at the Battle of Quiberon Bay with a well-led, boldly commanded fleet that was battle-worthy in what was a confused pursuit battle in very high winds and very high waters in the shoal-infested South Breton coast. Essentially, in what was a very confusing engagement, and so not the sort of geometric lines of li- and the linear tactics and the line-ahead exchanges of fires that you saw in most naval battles, at least in theory. Instead, in what was a jumble with boats engaging against others whom, which whom they can reach, superior British firepower seems to have played the key role. The British were very, very good, and indeed remained very, very good in the Napoleonic period, very, very good at firing at close range and building up quite a high fire rate, which incidentally, you also see the same thing with the British infantry in um, battles on land. The French had not anticipated that once they fled into the bay that they would be engaged. They weren't really prepared for it, but in the sense, the battle that is closest to Quiberon Bay is Nelson's victory at the Battle of the Nile, the Battle of Abukir Bay in 1798, where again, his bold use of his ships in very shallow waters enabled him to put them in better position against the French and then to pour fire into the French ships at pretty close range.
Looking to the future, the Battle of Quiberon Bay helps to lead the British in the latter years of the Seven Years' War with a key margin of naval superiority. And in particular, Spain comes in on France's side in 1762. But by the time Spain comes in, the British have decisively defeated the French at sea, so Spanish intervention is not able to make much difference. More specifically, in 1760 the French besieged Quebec again. You know, the British had captured it with James Wolfe in 1759. The French, who had, still had large forces in Canada, besieged Quebec in 1760. And the key element that saved Quebec was the British naval superiority that enabled the British to get a squadron into the St. Lawrence as soon as the ice melted. And that provided the crucial prelude to the successful advance on Montreal. So in many respects, Quiberon Bay not only saves Britain from invasion, but saves the British strategic position in North America. So it was a victory of great importance then? It was a victory of great importance. I would argue that Quiberon Bay was more of a crisis for Britain than Trafalgar. Because at the moment of Trafalgar, the Franco-Spanish fleet that Nelson intercepted was sailing not towards Britain, but towards Italy in order to foster Napoleon's campaigns in the War of the Third Coalition. In the case of Quiberon Bay, it was an active and actual planned and in progress invasion of Britain that was interrupted. So I would argue that Quiberon Bay was a much more key moment for Britain's success in defeating France and in becoming the great power of the 18th century and 19th century world than Trafalgar was. So was Quiberon Bay Britain's greatest ever naval triumph, do you think? I think in many respects, Quiberon Bay was Britain's greatest ever naval triumph. It is true that, of course, Trafalgar had this great memory in the 19th century, and nobody's denying that Trafalgar was a very important battle. And obviously there are other very many important battles. Spanish Armada in 1588 and Barfleur in 1692 would be the other two key ones, I would suggest, and the Battle of the Atlantic, a rather drawn-out battle in 1943. But I think Quiberon Bay was absolutely crucial because the plan, the French plan was not bad. The invasion was in progress, which was not the case with the Spanish Armada, that even when the Spaniards got through the channel, they still had the enormous problem of linking up with the Duke of Parma's men. So I would say that 1759 is an absolutely crucial moment. Why it tends to be overlooked is because whereas Trafalgar led to a 19th century world dominated by the British, in the case of the Seven Years' War, much of the verdict was to be reversed within two decades in the War of the American Independence, in which, of course, France came in on the American side, so that the achievement of the Seven Years' War was thrown away in many respects by poor politics, in a way that would be inconceivable today. Of course, one couldn't imagine that politicians make errors in this present world. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That was Jeremy Black, Professor of History at the University of Exeter. 
He is the author of Naval Power, which was published by Polgrave this year. You can read more about the battle in our latest edition. Thanks, Rob. Now, in a moment, we'll hear a fascinating story about the children living in a small British colony in Belgium who got caught up in the Second World War. But first, here's what else is in the November issue of the magazine. The Berlin Wall, of course, came down 20 years ago this month. You can read about the secret dealings and stealthy planning that led to the building of the wall during the Cold War. You can also find out about the day of complete motorway madness when Britain's first major motorway opened in 1959. And you can also find out where to visit places associated with the gunpowder plot. In the years after the First World War, a small group of former British soldiers remained in Belgium to tend the Commonwealth war graves at Ypres. Here they lived for many years, started families and raised children who were educated at the British Memorial School. Their tenure was abruptly curtailed when, in 1940, the German army once again swept over Belgium. The Memorial School was disbanded and its pupils were scattered. Their subsequent fate is the subject of a fascinating new book by Sue Elliott and James Fox. Sue has written a piece for our latest issue and I caught up with her a little while back to find out more about this little-known story. How did you find out about the story of the British Memorial School at Ypres? My good friend Steve Humphreys from Testimony Films, who I've collaborated with before, was telling me about the research that he was doing for um, a documentary he was making for BBC4. And he was telling me about this amazing school in Ypres that had been started up by old Etonians in memory of their fallen comrades. And it was full of British children. And there was this large, thriving British colony in Ypres between the two world wars. And I said, this is amazing. I've never heard of anything like this before. Do you think there might be a book in it? And he said, I'm sure there is a book in it, but you need to talk to Jimmy Fox, who was at the British Memorial School, and he's done years of research about it. So Steve introduced me to Jimmy, and that's how I found out a lot more about the school and the British colony in Ypres. Just to go to the beginning of the story, why was this British Memorial School there? Well, after the First World War, obviously there were a lot of dead to bury and the Imperial War Graves Commission that had been started in 1917 had a policy of recruiting British ex-servicemen to go back to Flanders to build and then to maintain all the war cemeteries. And this obviously took quite a few years. And so many of those men actually settled in and around Ypres, the old Ypres salient. Many settled with local women, French and Flemish women, and had families. And those who didn't marry locally brought their wives and girlfriends over from Britain. And so by about 1923 or so, there are about 500 British families in Ypres and its surrounding villages. So it was mostly the war graves commissioned gardeners and builders who were there, but there were also quite a lot of other British ex-servicemen in and around Ypres because there was a thriving tourism industry based on the old battlefields, people wanting to come over and see the site of the war. But also, more sadly, of course, there was also a thriving pilgrimage business as well, bereaved families and widows coming over to find the graves of their loved ones. So they were catered for by a lot of British ex-servicemen who ran taxi businesses and hotels and other bits of the service industry to tourism. And the school was set up for their children there? 
Yes, that's right, because there were enough British children, really, to warrant it. And there was quite a strong feeling that the children of, as it were, mixed marriages, Anglo-Belgian and Anglo-French parentage, were losing out or the empire would be lost to them. And so it was thought that they really needed an Anglican church and also a British school because there was some fear that they would turn out to be foreign or continental and perhaps even worse, Catholic. So the Anglican Church of St. George was built for them and the new British Memorial School, although first of all it was called the Eton Memorial School because the buildings were paid for by Old Etonians. So in the Second World War, what happened to this community when the Nazis invaded? Well, there was huge panic and the plans that had been laid since September 1939 to evacuate the community were hastily got together again. But of course, in these chaotic circumstances with the fog of war, nothing quite goes to plan. And about 250 men, women and children were evacuated from Ypres through the good offices of a very brave man called Reginald Howarth, who was a Wargraves Commission employee. He got them away, but at no little cost. Although they all survived, they had a horrendous seven-day journey to the coast, a journey that today would take about 35 minutes, took them almost a week. And they were constantly under fire from stukas. They slept rough. They slept in a convent. They slept in old factories. By the time that they got to Calais, things were pretty bad. And they finally managed to get away on a variety of different crafts over two days. It was a miraculous escape, really, but it was a horrendous journey for all of them. And some of those children were very young indeed. Some were babes in arms. Some, like Jimmy Fox, were only four at the time, but the memories of what they saw then are still very much with them, still very much alive in their minds. Some of the former pupils of the school went on to play quite an active part in the war, for example, joining the resistance or the SOE. Do you think their heroics were inspired by their unusual upbringing? I think it must have been, really. It was a very unusual upbringing. They grew up among the cemeteries and war graves and old battlefields of the First World War. They grew up in the shadow of war and death, so they knew what it meant. And in addition to that, they were fighting, yes, for their mother country, Britain, but they were also fighting very much for their adopted homeland, Belgium. They were actually there and they could see they witnessed the rise of Nazism in the years running up to the war and then when war started and certainly soon after the invasion they could see the Germans at close quarters and see what was happening in their actual adopted country. So I think they had more reasons than most to do heroic things and to serve their country in exceptional ways. Did these former pupils exhibit an especially high level of patriotism? They were fiercely patriotic and this had been drummed into them almost at the British Memorial School. They had things like Empire Day and May Day and they had pictures of the King and Queen in their classroom and they had a constant stream of VIPs through the school telling them that Britain was their homeland and the country to which they owed first allegiance. And so I think it came 
absolutely naturally to them growing up that they would serve in the armed forces if and when they got back to the UK or if as happened to some of them they were left behind they would fight the Germans for all their worth they would join the resistance or do other things to subvert the occupier I think this was very strong in their minds. After the war had finished what happened to the school and the pupils? Well, they were all scattered to the four winds. Many of them who'd been able to be evacuated were in the UK. Some families drifted back to Flanders, but many stayed in the UK after the war. They'd had such a horrendous experience getting out that they didn't want to go back. And the school and the British community, well, the community was very much smaller than it had been in the interwar period. And the school just simply didn't have enough pupils in the area to warrant reopening. So after it shut in May 1940, its doors were shut forever, really. For you writing a book, what was it like to meet and interview some of these people? It was an enormous privilege. I mean, these are all very ordinary people from ordinary families, working class families, who found themselves in exceptional circumstances. When you talk to them, they don't think that they did anything special at all. They just reacted how anybody would react. But actually, they went through exceptional times and their responses were exceptional. They had to be in a way. And so it was an enormous privilege for me to meet these people, many of them in their 80s and some in their 90s now. And I found it a tremendous education. I mean, I didn't learn very much about the First and Second World Wars at school. My A-level history syllabus was 18th century European social and economic. So I knew very little about 20th century history. Now I know a lot more. When they were talking about their past experiences, did they speak proudly about it? Was it something that they had nostalgia for their wartime adventures? I think they were tremendously proud in a very quiet, modest way about what they'd been able to do, the contribution that they'd been able to make. And actually, for many of them, that contribution had been recognised formally with honours, the Croix de Guerre, the DFC, after the war, OBEs and MBEs and British Empire medals. They had all made a tremendous contribution. And until now, I don't think it's been publicly recognised, which is a shame, really. That's partly because, I think, when something traumatic has happened to you in your earlier life, you tend to want to move on from it. You don't necessarily want to talk about it. And then as you get a bit older, you forget or nobody seems very interested. And it's only towards the end of your life when perhaps you're taking stock of things that you feel, well, that was important and maybe people should know about it and yes I am willing to talk about it now and it's only through really the persistence and tenacity of Jimmy Fox who spent the last 10 years tracing all those people that were at the school and gathering their stories and recording their experiences which I've been able to draw on for this book that enabled their story finally to be told and I'm very proud myself that I was able to do that for them.
So is this really the first time that this story has been properly brought to public's attention? I think it is, in any detail. The whole detail of the evacuation and also the contribution of what many of those children went on to do during the war years and immediately after. I think it is the first time, yeah. Well deserved, really. It's a story that does need to be told because it's the story of ordinary people, but as I say, in extraordinary circumstances. That was Sue Elliott, co-author of The Children Who Fought Hitler, which has just been published by John Murray. And you can read features by both Jeremy Black and Sue Elliott in the November issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale in the UK now. And even better, you can save money and ensure that you never miss an issue by subscribing. The magazine is published each month and we have great subscription deals available whether you're in the UK or overseas. There are details on our website and the URL for that once again is www.bbchistorymagazine.com That's it. Thanks as ever for listening. I do hope you enjoyed it. Look out for our next podcast, which is out in a couple of weeks. You'll be able to find out what the Tommies on the Western Front had for Christmas dinner and hear about the origins of the French Revolution. <laughs>